Welcome back to the Pater the Water Dog Saves the Planet Peace Podcast. If you ever think that a bit more meditation and time in nature and a little less phone would lead you to a more peaceful life, you might enjoy some simple tips in my free ebook, Tree, Tea, No TV, The Little Book of Big Peace. Just go to my website, avaskolfsbeck.com, to download it. Shall we continue on with our reading of John Muir's Studies in the Sierra? This is a continuation of Chapter 1, Mountain Sculpture. The Tuolumne Middle Region presents a sublime assemblage of glacier-borne rocks of which a general view may be obtained from the summit of Mount Hoffman. These were overswept by the wide outlets of the great Tuolumne Mare de Glare. The Tuolumne Canyon outlet flowed across the edges of the best-developed or north 35 degrees east vertical cleavage plains, which gave rise to an extraordinary number of rocks, like figure eight, with their split and fractured surfaces invariably turned downstream and rounded abraded sides up against the ice current. The glaciated landscape is unrivaled in general effect, combining as it does so many elements of sublimity. The summit mountains, majestic movements of glacial force, rise grandly along the azure sky. The brown Tuolumne meadow, level as a floor, is spread in front and on either side a broad swath of somber pines, interrupted with many small meadow openings, around the edges of which the forest presses in smooth, close lines. On the level bottom of the Mer de Glace, mountains once stood, which have been broken and swept away during the ice winter like loose stones from a pavement. Where the deep glacial flood began to break down into the region of domes, a vast number of rock forms are seen on which their glacial history is written in lines of noble simplicity. No attribute of this glacial landscape is more remarkable than the map-like distinctness of its varied features. The directions and magnitudes of the main ice currents, with their numerous subordinate streams, together with the history of their fluctuations and final death, are eloquently expressed in the specific rocks, hills, meadows, and valleys over which they flowed. No commercial highway of the sea, edged with buoys and lamps, or of the land with fences and guideboards, is so unmistakably marked as these long-abandoned highways of the dead glaciers. If from some outlook still more comprehensive, the attentive observer contemplates the wide flank of the Sierra, furrowed with canyons, dimpled with lake basins, and waved with ridges and domes. He will quickly perceive that its present architectural surface is not the one upon which the first snows of the glacial winter fell, because with the simple exceptions of the jag summit peaks from whose neve fountains the glaciers descended, there exists over all the broad flank of the range not one weak rock form. All that remain to roughen and undulate the surface are strong domes or ridge waves or crests with pavement-like levels or solid-walled canyons between. All the rest have been broken up and swept away by the glaciers. 
Some apparent exceptions to this general truth will present themselves, but these will gradually disappear in the light of patient investigation. The observer will learn that near the summit ice fountains, there are absolutely no exceptions, even in appearance, and that it is only when he follows down in the paths of the glaciers and thus comes upon rocks which were no longer left bare by them in their gradual recession that he begins to find instances of rocks at once weak in structure and strong in form. The regular transition from strong to weak rocks will indicate that the greater weakness of those farther removed from the summits is due to some force or forces which acted upon them subsequently to the time they were sustaining the wear and tear of the glaciers. The cause of this after weakness are various. First, we may note the most apparent, the slow decomposition of the mass of the rock by the atmosphere under favorable conditions of heat and moisture. Some varieties of granite crumbled rapidly by the decomposition of their field spar throughout the mass. Rocks traversed by field-pathic veins that are otherwise strong fall apart on the decomposition of the veins into a heap of loose blocks. Frost also combined with moisture, produces a wasted, shattered appearance. But by far the most general and influential cause of the feeble condition of old rocks, which formerly withstood the terrible ordeal of glacial action, is the subsequent development of one or several of their cleavage planes. For example, here is figure 13, a boulder of hard metamorphic slate, which after withstanding many a crush and blow in its winter history, under its angles were worn and battered at length on the recession of the glacier to which it belonged, came to rest on a smooth, hard pavement, so level that it could not have rolled or fallen to its present position, yet it is now split in two, having fallen apart by its own weight on the ripening of one of its cleavage planes, just as the valves of seeds ripen, open, and fall. Figure 14 is a profile view of a rock 200 yards from the head of the Yosemite Fall, which is now weak and ready to fall apart by the development of the vertical north 35-degree east cleavage planes, the edges of which are seen in front. Yet it is certain that this rock was once subjected to the strain of the oversweeping Yosemite Basin Glacier when on its way to join the main trunk Yosemite Glacier in the valley. Figure 15 is a ruinous dome top on the divide between Yosemite Creek Basin and Cascade. The beginner in such studies would not perceive that it had been overswept, yet hard portions near the base show clear evidence of glacial action, and though ruinous and crumbling, it will at once appear to the educated eye that its longer diameter is exactly in the direction of the oversweeping ice current, as indicated in the figure by the arrows. Rock masses, hundreds or even thousands of feet in height, abound in the channels of the ancient glaciers, which illustrate this argument by presenting examples in every stage of decay, the most decayed always occurring just where they have been longest exposed to disintegrating and general weathering agents. The record of ice phenomena as sculptured, scratched, and worn upon the mountain surfaces is like any other writing, faint and blurred according to the length of time and hard usage to which it has been exposed. 
It is plain, therefore, that the present sculptured condition of the Sierra is due to the action of ice and the variously developed cleavage of plains and concentric seams which its rocks contain. The architect may build his structures out of any kind of stone without their forms betraying the physical characters of the stone employed, but in Sierra architecture, the style always proclaims the nature of the rock. In walking the sublime canyon streets of the Sierra, when we see an arch spanning the pine groves, we know that there is the section of a glacier-broken dome. Where a gable presents itself, we recognize the split end of a ridge with diagonal cleavage planes developed atop, and these again cut by a vertical plane in front. Does a sheer precipice spring from the level turf thousands of feet into the sky? There we know the rock is very hard and has but one of its vertical cutting planes developed. If domes and cones appear, there we know the concentric structure predominates. No matter how abundant the glacial force, a vertical precipice cannot be produced unless its cleavage be vertical, nor a dome without dome structure in the rock acted upon. Therefore, when we say that the glacial ice sheet and separate glaciers molded the mountains, we must remember that their molding power upon hard granite possessing a strong physical structure is comparatively slight. In such hard, strongly built granite regions, glaciers do not so much mold and shape as disinter forms already conceived and ripe. The harder the rock and the better its specialized cleavage planes are developed, the greater will be the degree of controlling power possessed by it over its own forms as compared with that of the disentering glacier and the softer the rock and more generally developed its cleavage planes, the less able will it be to resist ice action and maintain its own forms. In general, the grain of a rock determines its surface forms. Yet it would matter but little what the grain might be, straight, curved, or knotty, if the excavating and sculpturing tool were sharp, because in that case it would cut without reference to the grain. Every carpenter knows that only a dull tool will follow the grain of wood. Such a tool is the glacier, gliding with tremendous pressure past splitting precipices and smooth-dwelling domes, flexible as the wind, yet hard-tempered as steel. Mighty as its effects appear to us, it has only developed the predestined forms of mountain beauty which were ready and waiting to receive the baptism of light. Thank you for joining me for the Pedro the Water Dog Peace Podcast. Until next time, sit with yourself in silence every day. That's self with a capital S. We are all scholars of peace. Peace and love to you all. Podcast music is Dalai Lama Riding a Bike by Javier Peque Rodriguez. A link to his music on Spotify and Bandcamp are in the show notes. Support messages of peace in the planet by joining my Patreon for as little as a cup of coffee per month at patreon.com. Just search Avis Kalbspeck or Pedro the Water Dog to find me. Pedro the Water Dog Saves the Planet books 1 through 5 are available at all your favorite online bookstores or at avaskalfspec.com. Book 1, 
One More Year is available as an audiobook on all the audiobook sites, with the other books coming soon to audio. If you enjoyed this episode, or are at least curious about the future ones, please subscribe to this podcast wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Thank you again. Listen for the peace. Peace.